You're listening to Lewis Silkin Radio. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Pay Attention, a regular podcast coming to you from the Lewis Silkin offices in London and Dublin. My name's Tom Hayes. My name is Shebra Rush. And I'm David Lorimer. And we've gathered around the microphones today to talk about the Pay Transparency Directive. So, David, how did we get here? Yeah, good question, Tom. So um, I think we probably all know the right to equal pay for men and women has been built into EU law since 1957, long, long ago. Um, But the truth is, it's really been hard to challenge that and enforce it, uh, particularly for employees and those who represent them. The Pay Transparency Directive aims to make that much, much easier. It's going to put some pressure on employers to be more transparent about their pay structures uh, and more proactive about fixing uh, gender-based inequalities, uh, which should in turn increase gender diversity in the workplace. So that's the background then. What's the pay transparency do, Shifra? So the EU Pay Transparency Directive is basically a directive that must be implemented by member states uh, around the EU in 2026. It introduces requirements around gender pay gap reporting. Now, we'll all be aware that a lot of the EU countries already have gender pay gap reporting, but some of that looks quite different depending on the size of the employer and uh, how they work. For instance, countries like Austria, Belgium, France, uh, Italy, they might have works councils and they may be quite far into gender pay gap reporting, whereas Ireland has only had it for a year. So I suppose it's trying to get that all in line with, with certain minimum requirements around gender pay gap reporting. Um, there are also obligations around categorization of work. So what we're going to see is better creation of rights around using the information that comes from gender pay gap reporting to potentially ground claims for equal pay. Um, there are also individual rights then uh, created by the directive around uh, not being asked your salary history and employers being required to publish pay ranges for or pay levels for, for jobs that they are advertising. So we're seeing quite a, a range of rights and obligations for employers. Um, it is to be implemented by 2026 by member states. Um, so we are all watching with bated breath to see how individual jurisdictions um, implement this because obviously we have clients that operate in a number of jurisdictions and we need to help them to try to, to get certain minimum reporting in, in line so that they can be compliant. And on that, we've got a podcast exclusive. We think that France is going to be the first to go or the first to declare their intention to implement by January 2025. So some states might go early, which is interesting. Well, that sounds like a really good jumping off point. Shall we just try and delve into a little bit of detail about what's coming? And the headline is some organisations have got to report on pay gaps. Tom, what exactly are they going to have to report on? Well, the the Pay Transparency Directive starts from the same kind of point as what you might be familiar with in the UK and in Ireland, but on steroids. It's it's like gender pay gap reporting, but to the max. So as well as having to report a series of uh, statistics for the company and its workforce, every employer with at least 150 employees will have to calculate and report gender pay gaps within categories of employees doing work of equal value. So what that means is companies will have to identify where there are employees doing work that has similar levels of skill, effort and decision making and 
calculate uh, the difference between men and women within those groups and where those differences are more than 5% and that can't be objectively justified, you know, there aren't any good objective reasons for that, then that's going to prompt a joint pay assessment. This is the, the biggest point, I think, of the Pay Transparency Directive. It's essentially an equal pay order of the entire organisation and it will have to be done in conjunction, in cooperation with uh, workers' representatives. And so um, what we're talking about here is employers opening up all the way in which they pay all of their workforce, all sorts of compensation, all sorts of benefits in kind for all employees across all of the EU and having workers' representatives be able to to see all of this. So I, I think what that means is that there's a year or possibly two maximum for employers to start getting the house in order and uh, working out where there are people doing work of equal value, do it, you know, jobs within the same category and uh, work out what the gaps are and take steps to try and reduce them because it's going to expose a lot of things that might not want to be exposed. Tom, I, I just asked David if I could barge in here because I, I know the pay gap audit is potentially your your bag and, and your focus. I think that certainly from an Irish perspective where we don't have heavy union involvement and employee reps are really only elected where there is a tube situation or for health and safety matters um, or for collective redundancy. So a lot of employers won't have an employee representative body per se. I, I don't know if there's much experience of this in the UK as well around how do we think that that's going to work where, you know, for instance, in countries where there are works councils and trade unions, empl- the employers will be well used to, um, you know, informing the, the reps about the information that's going to be required to be given under the pay transparency directive. Um, but how do how do we think it will work where that's not the normal way of working for them. I don't know if either of you have any input or experience around that. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it looks to me from the wording of the directive that um, some of this might fall to existing representative bodies. So for example, a works councils or equivalent in France and Germany, but where those don't exist, there will be a new freestanding requirement really to um, allow or facilitate election or appointment of those reps and that's going to give rise to difficulties in circumstances where it's perfectly possible in in places like Ireland to train employee reps on what the TUPE information consultation process looks like but it's going to be quite difficult to train reps on interpreting statistical data and understanding what that means and understanding whether that represents unfair or unequal gender bias, for example. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think there's um, going to be a lot of people elected or selected into these workers' representatives roles who um, don't really understand what their job will be, don't understand what data it is that they have to make sense of. And for an employer to try and consult and deal with someone who, you know, is not up, up to speed, who, who doesn't get it, it's going to be it's going to be a massive problem. Yeah. And I think that's not necessarily unique to territories like the Republic of Ireland. I mean, we've surveyed 
lots of our friends across Europe and they're all, many of them worried about uh, what the worker reps look like. And even those who are used to collective bargaining structures are worried about them being, um, I guess, informed and, and trained enough to deal with these fairly complex um, scenarios. What about then, so Tom, you covered a lot of ground there in terms of what needs to be published. And the one that, that the one in terms of reporting that sticks out to me is this requirement to do two things. One, categorize our workforce according to work of equal value, um, equal pay alert, and two, to report on the gaps between those categories. Uh, second, equal pay alert. Um, on categorization, uh, I mean, how are we going to do that? Well, there's a big pause there because uh, <laughs> there's a lot of unknowns about this. I think in some countries, so we've talked before about France and Italy, uh, there's lots of collective bargaining there's already quite a good idea as to what sort of jobs are similar to what other sorts of jobs. So in those places, categorization may not be too difficult. They can rely on what's already there. In places like Ireland, where that doesn't exist, it's going to require employers really understanding what all of their different jobs involve in terms of the skill and the effort and decision-making for all of their roles. And, you know, then thinking about how they all compare to each other. Yeah, I think the the whole thing around kind of job architecture and like work is going to be quite problematic. And I think, you know, even though we're telling clients that this is coming in in 2026, and I suppose it is worth saying it needs to be implemented by member states by 2026. However, for instance, in Ireland, where we did have our gender pay gap act passed in 2021 it wasn't actually commenced until 2022 that's when the gender pay gap reporting came in so there might be some some differences in timing between member states which will be problematic for multinational employers who are trying to comply with various local regulations but coming back to the kind of the job architecture that the the categorization part of the reason why we are flagging this now is because that could be a massive project for stakeholders and some stakeholders might not even know that they are a stakeholder right now you know i suppose um hr and and employee relations and uh comp and ben really need to get the business on board with this and get people around the table to discuss how this is going to be done even though it's somewhat in a vacuum now where you don't have local reg regulations but you have an idea of what's going to be required so that at least at a high level it's in people's minds action is being taken to start that process so that when local regulations come in and are implemented that you're ready to go and you're not scrambling okay so we've gone from a position where uh, it seems like quite a long way off. 2026 is the deadline for implementation to suddenly thinking, well, hang on a minute. We've got to potentially categorize our workforce for the first time. We've then got to work out the gaps between each category by running dry run analytics. We've got to work out whether 5% or more and then try and find a justification or face the very real threat when it comes to publication of protracted and costly equal pay litigation. Have we seen examples of that recently, Tom? Well, we sure have. If you've uh, kept your eye on the news at all in the past few months, you would have seen Birmingham City Council in the UK uh, has gone bust, declared itself bankrupt because of, the main reason is because of um, equal pay uh, debt. It lost a series of claims against it relating to 
um, equal value litigation. There it was female-dominated roles being compared with male-dominated roles. The male-dominated roles were getting bonuses that female-dominated roles uh, were not getting. And so it was a pretty slam-dunk case, and uh, they lost. And they're a massive employer. And so even if we're just talking for lots of employers about a small difference, times that by a lot of people, times that by six years back pay, it adds up to a lot of money. For Birmingham City Council, it's in the the billions, I think. Asda are also facing equal value litigation. The potential debt, if they lose, is up to £2 billion. And I think what the Pay Transparency Directive does is it removes the the barrier that has stopped people from bringing equal pay claims before. The problem is you've got to be able to identify someone getting paid more than you. How do you do that? Well, you don't know unless you go around asking everyone how much they get paid and no one's going to tell you. With the Pay Transparency Directive, you, as an individual employee, you have the right to get that information and the employer has to publish that information anyway. So it really makes it very easy for employees to bring claims and with the the extra involvement of workers' representatives, I can foresee across Europe a lot more of this big litigation being brought and employers having to face the consequences. But uh, I think an additional factor in the armory for employees, rather, in terms of bringing these claims and, and the, the, the basic fact is that knowledge is power. It's part of the individual rights. So not alone, as Tom has pointed out, can employees look for information from the employer about people that they think are doing like work in the same category. But they can also, there's no ability on an employer to ban employees from talking about their pay, where it's for the purposes of a potential equal pay claim. So I think we might see much less secrecy in the employee population around pay, where it's it's for the purposes of potentially grounding an, an equal pay claim. And it's interesting, actually, I was wondering how far back those UK cases could go, because it's the same in Ireland, you can go back six years. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's obviously very costly where it where there's a, a large group of people who, who are bringing those claims. And we see fewer kind of class claims here. But I think, again, that's something that we might might, might become more common as uh, this whole area moves on. Absolutely. And it's something to keep an eye on. And just to draw one of the points that you made and to segue neatly onto the individual rights piece, further, there is this basically this kind of replication of the right of subject access, but in pay transparency terms, there's a right for employees and their representatives to ask organisations to tell them how uh, how they are paid in comparison to the rest of their category. And as far as we can see, that applies regardless of headcount. So even those who aren't required because of the headcount thresholds to report publicly on this stuff are going to have to report um, for the purposes of, of kind of employee information and transparency. And some of the other, I guess, individual elements, which are probably quite interesting and which we'll return to at some future point, well, they include, as Shifra mentioned, a ban on asking um, or a ban on pay secrecy clause, also a ban on, on asking candidates at interview stage about their pay history. There's a requirement to publish salaries or salary ranges when advertising vacancies for the first time. And that kind of replicates some of the measures we've seen in some of the states in the US. Um, and 
uh, a ban, as Schieffer says, on uh, stopping employees disclosing their pay to others. So absolutely, this could make a real cultural change as well as a um, legislative one. I'm I'm very keen to see how that impacts the small and medium enterprises. You know, the creation of these individual rights is obviously great for employees and and very progressive. You know, and it does it does help to bring on the aim around the EU of of you know closing the gender pay gap. But the more regulation we've seen come in um, in Ireland, the the more difficult it has been for kind of smaller employers to to comply. So it'll be interesting to see whether if a smaller employer doesn't comply with that requirement, what the potential um, ramifications will be in the Irish regulations. Because, for instance, at the moment, if an employer hasn't published their gender pay gap report, an employee can bring a claim to the Workplace Relations Commission, but they can't be awarded compensation. The only order that can be made is that the the employer comply and, and publish their statistics. So I wonder if that will be taken into consideration when when our um, implementing legislation comes in. Yeah, interesting. And and one of the things that's TBC and local legislation is um, specific penalties for non-compliance. So we'll be keeping a keen eye on on that. Now, we're not just going to have a lovely conversation with lots of big red flags and and scary uh, things to look out for for the Pay Transparency Directive. Don't worry, we've got you covered. And with that in mind, Tom, do you want to give us uh, a, a quick overview of what we intend to cover in future episodes? We'll have a number of episodes covering uh, specific topics within the Pay Transparency Directive. We'll be looking at individual rights, a deeper dive into the joint pay assessment. Uh, We'll be getting views from around Europe and specialist input around the role of worker representatives and what employers need to think about. Sounds fabulous. Can't wait to sit in on some of those discussions. Of course, there's also lots of interesting and useful content in the usual places. So check out lewisilkin.com and uh, give us a follow on LinkedIn where we'll be uh, sharing and sharing and sharing all of our interesting Pay Transparency Directive hot takes. That's it for this episode. Do tune in and keep an eye on the agenda and we'll be back on it in the new year to talk about all things Pay Transparency again. 